Let's dive into Psalm 53, and before we do that, let's pray that Jesus would be with us this morning in the teaching. Jesus, um, Jesus, before you left us, you made a promise. It was a promise to send your spirit, the comforter. You said these words to your disciples. You said, I still have many things to say to you, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. This morning, Jesus, many of us approach you and we're, we're walking in darkness. We're walking in ways that you don't have for us that are opposed to you. Not acknowledging your goodness, your grace, and your love toward us. We're walking as if there is no God and as if you, Jesus, had never come to bring salvation. So we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, the comforter, counselor, keeper. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of light, the spirit of truth. And we need you to lead us this morning through the scriptures. We ask, would you help us to learn? We ask that you would give us hope. We ask that you would focus our minds and our eyes on this word that you have inspired. Take our eyes off of ourselves, off of the world, and place them firmly, squarely on you, Jesus, and the hope to come. And we simply ask that you would turn darkness that we all walk in and turn it into light. And we ask all of this, Jesus, in your name and according to your promise for your glory. And all God's people said, amen. Psalm 53 is written by David. David was the king of Israel. And in this psalm, David is very blunt, he's very direct about the condition of humanity. And you're going to notice they're not flattering words. David says, Psalm 53, beginning in verse 1, it's the fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat at my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are, in great terror, those where they're who used to say there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you and puts them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. It's the word of God. Sigmund Freud, Frederick Nietzsche, George Bernard Shaw, those are three names that I'd imagine just hearing those names, you know, a a good amount of us, a handful of us have heard all three. Many of us, maybe most of us have heard two of those names. And for sure, every single person in this room has at least heard of one of those names. Sigmund Freud was considered the father of modern psychology. Brilliant individual. Frederick Nietzsche, he's the most recognized philosopher of the 20th century. Again, brilliant George Bernard Shaw was a playwright. And each of these men, Freud, Nietzsche, Shaw, 
for all of their differences, they all had one underlying, one common belief in their hearts, and they declared it publicly as well. They declared publicly, there is no God. None. No God, no creator behind the creation. This universe is all that there is. What we experience now, there's nothing beyond it. No God. Freud put it like this in Civilization and Its Discontents. He wrote, quote, The whole thing is so patently infantile. He's talking about religion here. Religion, that is. So foreign to reality that to anyone with a friendly attitude to humanity, it is painful to think that the great majority of mortals will never be able to rise above this view of life. Belief in God, that's patently infantile. How could you believe that? If you have any shred of humanity in you, you should pity those who believe in God. You should pity them. Frederick Nietzsche said something very similar. He said, quote, faith in God means not wanting to know what is true. There's those who want to know what's true. They're, they're courageous enough to live up to reality. The rest of those people who don't believe in God, well, you know what? They just don't want to know what's true. They want to put cotton swabs in their ears and put their head in the sand. And they don't want to think about God because you know what? They'd rather live in their delirious reality. Shaw probably had the least flattering words. He said, quote, the fact that a believer in God is happier than a skeptic is no more to the point than the fact that a drunken man is happier than a sober one. These men are brilliant, by the way. I mean, brilliant men. You, you think of Freud? Freud was prolific. He wrote over 23 books. I can't even fire off an email without getting exhausted. 23 books, and he's influenced almost every area of academic study. Raise your hand in here if you had to study Freud in undergrad or in high school or in your graduate work at some level in some class. Raise your hand. Nearly everybody had to read Freud. That's how brilliant this man is. Nietzsche was equally brilliant. Nietzsche wrote books like Thus Spoke the Zarathustra and Beyond Good and Evil. He was an atheist, and he was required reading for me when I was studying religion in college. Required reading. If you want to understand the 20th century, you have to read Nietzsche. You have to. Brilliant thinker. Shaw, he was considered by some as second only to Shakespeare, as the greatest playwright in the English language. Brilliant men. These men were brilliant. But all three of them said in their heart, there is no God. There's no God. This God does not oversee our lives. God does not judge between good and evil. God is just a patently infantile wish for people who cannot think otherwise. He won't judge us or hold us accountable. There is no God. That's the underlying belief of all of these men. And David writing, you know, over 3,000 years ago. David puts it bluntly. I, I love how David does this. He doesn't even give a philosophical argument against theories of atheism or against this idea that God doesn't exist. He just bluntly states that that thought, that idea, that sentiment, that belief is utterly foolish. It is so foolish. 
for all of the brilliance, for all of the genius, for all of the prolificness. I'm not even sure if that's a word. He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to deny God, no matter how brilliant you are. That is the epitome. It's the epitome of foolishness. In verse one, he says, it's the fool. The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. That's foolish. It's the fool who says that. And now you have to understand and keep this in mind. It's not just outright, explicit, vocal atheists that are foolish in David's mind here. Those people didn't even exist in David's time. David didn't even understand what it meant for somebody to not even have the concept of God. So he's not talking about those who deny the existence of God outright, philosophical atheists. David's main target is the practical atheist. The practical atheist is the person who says, sure, yeah, I, I believe in God. I, there's a deity out there. Sure, there's, there's a creator. I can, I can get on board for that. There's a God out there. But for all intents and purposes, if you were to take the microscope and look at that person and look at the inner recesses of their being, look into their soul, their heart, that same person who says, sure, there is a God. If you looked at their heart, it would say something completely different because they believe in a God that in no way has any importance in their life. None. A God who takes no interest in human affairs. He doesn't call people to account for their lives. Their heart would say, well, God does, he doesn't have a say on what's right and wrong. I make my own meaning. I live my own purpose. I do me. And you can do likewise. God won't judge or hold me accountable for the life I live or my actions or my desires. God's too loving for that. I believe in a God of love. God would never do that. God doesn't oversee my life. God can't hear me. He won't really answer me if I call out to him. God doesn't care what I look at, how I spend my money, how I raise my children, who I date, who I live with, what I do sexually, how I spend my time, or what I do at all. David's main target is that person. It's the fool. The fool is the one whose lips say, I believe 90% of Americans say that. 90% of Americans, sure, there's a, there's, a, there's a God out there, but in their heart, in their heart, their soul, at the core of their being, God is completely shut off from the affairs of their life and they deny any personal accountability to that God for their actions. He might as well not exist at all. Jesus spoke about the fool. Did you know that? Jesus spoke about this fool. He said, there was a man who had this exceedingly great land. And, and the parable begins by saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. It was a good year. I mean, he sowed. His friends came out and helped him sow seed out through his fertile ground. And throughout the year, there was plenty of rain. <laughs> And all of those seeds started to sprout up. And then one thing led to another. And what do you know? Excess, abundance, prosperity. He never had a crop that fruitful before. Bursting at the seams. And you know the 
parable goes on and Jesus says, the man starts to think to himself, what shall I do? For, for I have nowhere to store all of these crops. That's how, that's how blessed I am. Of course, the thought never entered his mind. Does God have anything to say what I do with this abundance in crops, with my wealth, with my money, with my prosperity? Does God have anything to say about what would be right or wrong in this situation? How I should steward the good gifts that he's given me? Is God even present? Does he even care how much I, I, I do make or if, if I carry out my affairs in a certain way? Is there any God who will hold me personally accountable for my decisions and my actions in this life? Meh. Probably not. So I know what I'll do. I, I got it. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns that I have now and I'll build larger ones. I'll build huge ones and then I'll store all my grain and my goods. I don't have to consider God. I don't have to consider eternity or judgment. My creator who knit me together in my mother's wounds. No, I don't have to think about any of that. I'll build bigger barns, live in peace, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like a typical red-blooded American, doesn't it? USA, USA, USA. Jesus, you know what he says about this man? Fool. You are a fool. Don't you know that tonight God calls you to account? When you go to bed tonight, you will breathe your last breath. Your ticker will tick its last and you will stand before the judgment seat of God. You are a fool. You lived your whole life as if God was not going to require anything of you. You were a fool. Do you really think there's no God? Do you really believe that God is so impersonal, so detached, so out there that he's not going to examine your life and scrutinize your actions? That God will not hold you personally accountable for the breath and the life that he actually gave to you as a gift? That fool that Jesus spoke about so clearly is one and the same with the fool that David targets here. It's the practical atheist. It's the person who believes in God. Sure, who doesn't, right? But it's a God who's never present, has no expectations, never dictates, never intervenes, never challenges, never judges, never has anything more important to do than simply exist. In other words, the fool is the practical atheist who believes in a God who is not a God at all. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You might know this person. This person may be a family member. This person may be a friend, a colleague, a loved one. Your heart breaks for this person because... They just don't see it. They don't acknowledge it. There's nothing that you can do to make them acknowledge it. It's frustrating. You may be sitting next to this person this morning. You may be this person. You grew up in a family of faith, grew up in the church, read a couple of books of the Bible, know about David, Peter, the rest, but you're like the fool in the rich man's parable. Jesus' parable, meh. He probably doesn't really exist anyway. And you don't know God. 
You don't know him. And if you looked in your heart, if you looked at the inner recesses of your heart, you would know that that's the case. That even though theoretically, sure, if a pollster called you and said, do you believe in God? You'd say, yeah, why not? But in your heart, you'd say, meh, he doesn't exist. Not really. I'm sure David witnessed this constantly manifest everywhere he looked, right? Jewish men and women who considered themselves members of God's covenant community with David. Right? They, they knew and they had been told the story of God's promises, his love for his people, who had God's word in the Torah. God had not only revealed himself in creation, but he revealed himself in the words of scripture to these people to say, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. They heard the stories of creation and Moses, Joshua. They heard of God's horrible judgments on Egypt a sign of the things to come. They heard about God's judgments. They even heard God's self-description of himself. You realize God never described himself in personal terms to any other nation but the people of God. But when he did, he spoke to Moses and he made it very explicit who he was. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And their response was, eh, okay, fool, fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And David's prayer continues after this very blunt, direct, speaking to the fool. He then says, here's the result of this denial. The result of this denial, this practical denial of God within Israel is plain. He spells it out in the rest of verse 1. Specifically, he says, the fool, speaking of people in general, they are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. And then generally, as a summary statement here, David says, there is none, no one who does good. That's not just David's assessment, by the way. David's not, you know, having a bad day and really upset at people who don't believe in God and say, they're the problem. That's not his gripe here. No, he says, this is actually God's assessment. Verse two, God looks down from heaven on the children of man that word man, by the way, is Adam, Adam. It's uh, meaning every single human being, all of those who descend from Adam, which is, is every single human person. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what does God see? Well, verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not one. Does that prayer sound familiar to you? You'll remember back in Genesis chapter 1, it was Adam and Eve who were created by God. They were actually, they were the first fools of creation. Adam and Eve 
were created by God. He blessed them. He put them in a garden which was fruitful. He'd given them everything they needed for their flourishing. They had everything going for them. God was for them. They looked around every corner. There were trees they could eat from. There were rich berries that they could pluck. All of creation, God himself was for them and God gave them one command. He said, all of this is for you. All of it is for you. But do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. I love you. This is my concern for you. Do not eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It was after that command that Adam and Eve believed the foolish lie that there's no God. Sure, God created all this. Sure, he said, you shouldn't do this and that. But he doesn't really care if we eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil or not. After all, why would he put it there if he didn't want us to eat it? You can imagine the conversation. God's never judged. He's just been so good to us, right? He, He would never do something like that. We know God, and he would never judge people like us. And if we do, if we do eat it, he's not gonna hold us accountable. He isn't going to judge. And once Adam and Eve took from the tree and bit into the fruit, the result of their foolishness was so evident. It was manifest. All of a sudden, the result of their foolishness came clear as corruption, iniquity, sin, and the death that God had warned about. The death that he had told them about spread to every child of Adam. And by Genesis chapter 6, that was Genesis 1 through 3. As you go through Genesis chapter 6, we see that God looks down from heaven for the first time after the fall. In Genesis chapter 6, what God looks down at all of humanity, all of the children of Adam, and what does he see? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Not exactly an endorsement of humanity. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. And the next time that God looks down again, it's Genesis chapter 19 and 18, where God looks down on Sodom and Gomorrah, and God is looking for just one person, one righteous person, to spare the city's judgment of fire and sulfur. And when God looks... There is none righteous, no, not one. Not one person out of all of Sodom and Gomorrah is righteous. Now, does David's prayer sound familiar? What makes David's prayer so arresting is that God is looking down on his own covenant people who have heard his word, they've heard his judgments, they know his law, they've seen you know, all of God's goodness, and he sees the very same corruption that he saw when he looked down during the time of Noah. He looks down and he sees the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah and the twistedness. It's not just people generally out there anymore. No, it's his own people, Israel, the people of God. And in verse 3, 
You see that. That's what David's getting at. He says, they have all fallen away together. Jew, Gentile, Israel, not of Israel, Jacob, Sodom, Gomorrah, covenant or not. They have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Doesn't matter if you're in his covenant or not. God sees the same thing in his people as he does the rest of humanity. At our house, uh, we just had new neighbors uh, move in. They probably moved in a couple months ago. And they have a bunch of kids. I think they have more kids than us, which is hard. And uh, they're all the way ranging from ages like 17 down to 18 months. I don't know what mistake happened there, but they made it. And uh, one day they're having this party and there's their whole families outside. Plus they have a bunch of relatives and it's mass bedlam out there. I mean, they have this huge family and you know, there's food on the ground and there's Frisbees over here and kids are jumping on the trampoline. And then there's the 18 month old sitting right there without a shirt on, without pants on, just in a diaper. She looks like she just got covered in a bunch of mud or food or pudding or something or something worse. And I'm looking down at this family and I'm like, who moved in here? (laughs) Who are these people? Oh my goodness, how do you expect me to live next to people like this? And then I kid you not, I'm doing dishes and I'm looking out my window and out of the corner of my eye, I look over here and I see jumping on our trampoline with the sprinkler shooting into the trampoline is one of my daughters, bare naked as the day God made her, (laughs) jumping up and down on the trampoline singing Amazing Grace. <laughs> At least she was doing one thing right. Uh, can you imagine Can you imagine the grief, the pain and the heartache that filled God's heart as he looked down on his own covenant people, the people he had brought out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and he sees that same corruption, that same sin, iniquity and death that all those years ago he saw And the people during the time of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah, they've all fallen away. None is good, not even one. Together they say in their heart, there is no God. Together as a result, they have all become corrupt. Have you ever wondered why, have you ever wondered this? Have you ever wondered why you can't help but be jealous of that person who makes more money, has more assets, or is better looking than you? Have you ever wondered, where does that come from? Have you ever wondered why they have a good spouse and I'm stuck with him? Hannah thinks that all the time. (laughs) Where does that come from? That feeling of jealousy and, and envy and covetousness. Where does that come from? Have you ever wondered why when you receive criticism, the very first thing when somebody points out your fault, what you do is you immediately become defensive and start to blame others. Where does that come from? To blame shift and look to others because they're the ones who are in the wrong. Have you ever wondered why you take credit for all of your successes but explain away all of your failures? Or conversely, why when other people succeed, you explain away their successes and blame them for their failures? Where does that come from? 
Have you ever wondered why it feels so good? And it does. It feels so good when a coworker you don't like bombs a presentation and you look so much better as a result. It feels good, doesn't it? Why does that feel so good and where does that come from? Have you ever wondered why when you're angry and you just have one of those days, somebody close to you says, why are you angry? And your first reaction is always to say, I'm not angry. You're angry. (laughs) Where does that come from? Even if you're a Christian, that's in your heart, isn't it? Where does that come from? Have you ever wondered where these things come from? Well, David knows. David says it. David knows where it comes from. It comes from our hearts, corrupted with sin and abominable iniquity, corrupted because we are children of Adam. The same blood that runs through Adam and Eve's veins now runs through you and me. And because of it, in the deep recesses of our heart, we know, we know that we are corrupted And the first thing we say as a result is there is no God. Not one who's going to judge us anyway. There is no one who does good, not even one. And we're so prone to think, aren't we? We're so prone to think. Think about this. David wrote this psalm 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. We're talking 3,000 years ago. And he looks around at the people of God, the covenant people of God. He sees all this corruption. Surely he saw it in other places. And we are so prone to think today that, man, things are just so much worse than they were back then. They're so much worse than they were even 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago. If we could just get back to those days, things would be okay. But things now, they've just come unhinged. People are so corrupt I saw this quote recently of a person decrying the corruption of youth. They said, quote, children today love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love to chatter all day long instead of getting outside and exercising. Children today are tyrants, not the servants of their household. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter on before company, and gobble up their fine desserts at the table without even giving thanks. See how corrupt children are. Do you know who said that? Socrates, circa 400 B.C. No, humanity, whether it be children, adult. Jew, Gentile, Sodomite, Christian, agnostic, or verbal atheist, all children of Adam throughout time since Adam and Eve believed the damning lie are corrupt and unrighteous. There is not one who does good. Not even one. And notice in verse 4, David's prayer takes a turn, and it's a a radical turn because his prayer began with the fool speaking in their heart. There's no God. Eh, He doesn't exist. Not not at least a God who could judge me or hold me accountable. God just apparently infantile wish. But in verse 4, God speaks. He gets a word in. And he speaks back to the fool. He says, have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? Do these people, do they really think that they can just corrupt a good creation? 
that they can fill it with abominable iniquity, cherish lust and greed and covetousness in their souls, say in their heart, I don't exist, fill my world with anger, murder, jealousy, and godlessness, and nobody's going to be held accountable? Do they not know? Do you really think you can destroy one another and there's no moral consequences whatsoever? That, that you're going to devour people like you devour bread? Who here thinks about the morality abiding in to a piece of bread? No one. Yet, constantly, humanity never thinks that there's going to be moral implications, never thinks that there's going to be moral repercussions for any of their actions. Meh, God won't care. Probably doesn't even exist. Do you really think I'm going to allow that to happen, God says? Do you have no knowledge? Do you think I will not judge that I'll be favorable to you, even though you don't seek me or call upon me? That you can live a life expressing little or any spiritual interest, no remorse for your sin, no recognition of my judgments, no desire for mercy or grace, and then still avoid the repercussions? Have you no knowledge, you workers of evil? Do you really think that? Jesus in Luke chapter 17, he said that is actually the same exact mentality that happened during the time of Noah. Remember when God looked down and saw abomination and iniquity? Jesus said that same mentality was so common during that time. Jesus says people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Going about their business, never giving God second thought, not calling on God, saying in their heart, there's not a God, he's just an infantile wish. Then, verse 27, then the flood, the flood of God's judgment came and destroyed them all. David's prayer indicates that that same thing will happen again. David does in verse 5 what commentators call the prophetic present, where what he does is he speaks of something happening in the future, but he terms it in present tense form, saying it's as real as if it happened today, but it's coming. It's in verse 5. David says, there they are in terror where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. What he's saying is there's a day coming, like the days of Noah, when Jesus himself will return like a thief in the night at a time nobody expects to judge all the children of Adam. He will scatter bones, shatter and shame the proud, and he will reject those who do not embrace him by faith. Those who once said, there's nothing to fear, there they are. In terror, where there is no terror, where they once said, ah, there's nothing to fear. Oh, they'll be in fear. And on that day, Jesus himself will bring the judgment that they said would never come. You've probably heard of the man who doubted the existence of fire. This man lived his life doubting, seeing evidence of fire everywhere. He would go outside and he'd see ash heaps sitting on the ground around his log cabin. And he'd look there and there's a burned twig, burned log. He would see others as he was taking his journey through the woods. He would see them huddled around fires trying to keep warm around bonfires in the winter. He would smell the scent of food cooked. He had never cooked food before because fire never existed. So, you know, he would smell it waft in. 
as food was cooked over a flame nearby. Even one time, a wildfire broke out. Lightning struck, this wildfire broke out, and it got close to his house. And at that time, oh boy, at that time, it made him stop and think a bit. But ultimately, in the end, it never touched his house. He never changed. And all the while, he said, man, those people, if they would just wake up. If they would just wake up. They don't know how archaic and backward the whole business is, this stuff about fire. His whole life was spent doubting and denying the existence of fire until one day, in folly and in his pride, he stuck his hand into a fire to prove to his friends and his neighbors that it didn't exist. That it was all just an illusion, a thing made up by human beings. And do you know what happened to that person? All of his denials did not stop the fire from burning his hand. You can deny the existence of fire all you want until you are blue in the face, until you have no more breath in your lungs, but it will burn you all the same when you touch it. You're posturing, there's nothing to fear. That will not stop you from experiencing that day when God brings the judgment you said would never come. Nietzsche, Freud, Shaw spent their lives in their hearts saying there is no God, but I promise you now they know their folly. They know how foolish it was to believe such a thing and to not embrace the promises and the goodness and the grace and the love of God while they still had a chance. Jesus, again, he speaks of this day that David sees as the prophetic present. He, he sees that day, again, Luke chapter 17, and he says, on that day when he returns, it will be exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Luke 17, beginning in verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Life was going on as normal. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And Jesus says, so will it be on the day when I, Jesus, the son of man, is revealed in all of his glory. As another author put it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's an awful day. And as David contemplates and prays for the covenant people of God, he longs and prays for just one thing. He longs for a day when God himself, God sends salvation. No one's righteous. None. God, will you send a righteous one, not like Adam? A man who would be pure in heart, a man who would not commit iniquity or sin, a righteous one, a Messiah who will restore his people, who will bring his people back from corruption. David prays with all of his heart for his people and for himself. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. God, send the one you've promised. Send a deliverer. Send a righteous one. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Israel, be glad. He longs for this day when God will send one who is righteous. You go back to that story in Genesis chapter 18. God is going to visit Sodom and Gomorrah. And he tells Abraham, 
I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to rain fire and sulfur down from heaven and destroy every person in that city. A dreadful day. Oh, the worst day in Old Testament history by far. But right before he brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, God speaks to Abraham. And Abraham and him have this back and forth. And Abraham asks God, will you really judge all of Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you really do that? God, what if there are 50 righteous people there? Surely you're not going to judge if there are 50 righteous people. That's not in your character. You won't sweep away the unrighteous, or you won't sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous, will you? You're going to spare the 50, right? And God replies, of course. Of course I will. I will spare the whole city for the sake of 50. And Abraham presses God, well, what about 40? Maybe we can do it with 40. What if there are 40 righteous? Will you spare the city then? God says, of course. I would never punish 40 people for the sake of the unrighteous. Abraham continues to press on for 11 more verses. It takes up an entire chapter of Genesis chapter 18. And this type point, he's getting kind of blasphemous. He's like, well, what about 35, 30, 25, 20, 10? He sounds like an auctioneer, right? And he says, right, you will spare the city for just 10 righteous. God's answer is the same, of course. And after this back and forth, Abraham walks away, and it's very distinctly clear in Abraham's mind. He will spare anyone if there is one righteous. If there is just one righteous person, he will spare the many from judgment. But there has to be one. And as David prays, he longs for that day. When is that one coming? Oh, when is that day coming? Not like the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, a day in the prophetic present, a day still to come when God will look down from heaven and he will, he will see one who is righteous. Salvation on that day he knows will come for God's covenant people. God will restore the fortunes of his people because of this one man. All of his people on that day will rejoice and be glad. And what David looked forward to as future we, as the covenant people of God through faith in Jesus Christ, look back and we see that it was accomplished. <sighs> On the cross of Jesus, you know what happened? God looked down from heaven and saw one who was righteous, his own son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who took on the flesh of Adam, but he did not believe the lie even as he was being utterly forsaken by God on the cross, he cried out, I believe, and he did it, so that a righteous one would spare the many for judgment. On the cross, Jesus, who was God in flesh, willingly gave up his righteous life to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities. Jesus laid his life down for his covenant people who have faith in him so that we might rejoice, we might be glad, and we might be restored. Jesus is the righteous one. Do you long for that restoration? Oh, I hope some of you do. For that kind of forgiveness to be your own as David did, I would plead with you, if that is you, if you want that restoration, Jesus himself offers it freely. And I would plead with you this morning, 
There is one who is righteous, only one. And his name is Jesus crucified and sacrificed to spare you. All you have to do is run to him and embrace him. Charles Wesley, the famous hymn writer, wrote hundreds, if not thousands of hymns. My favorite one is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And it was in my mind this entire week as I was preparing this sermon because I know the story behind that sermon. Charles Wesley lived in England. It's uh, 18th century England, plenty of corruption going on in the city streets. And one of the biggest problems in England during the time was orphans. People would abandon their children Children with no earthly father to call their own, no earthly father to embrace them, no earthly father to tell them that they're loved, that they're cherished, that they're known. These orphaned children would go to bed every night feeling utterly forsaken and abandoned because they had no earthly father. And so seeing this, Charles Wesley wrote about us who are separated from our Heavenly Father and the great need for one who would come and restore us to his tender care. And so we wrote, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Would you release us? Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. He's the only hope. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. If that's your desire this morning, if that's your longing, then Israel's consolation has come in the name of Jesus. Embrace him by faith, and he will by no means cast you out. Amen? Jesus, we pray to you now. Even though you were in the form of God, you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But you emptied yourself, taking the form of a servant, being born as a man and humbling yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus, because of that, you are highly exalted and have the name that is above every name so that at the name of you, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that you, Christ, are Lord. Jesus, that's what you've come to do. And as what you are currently doing, you have come to set your people free from our fears and our sins. You are our consolation. You are the consolation, the covenant God. You are the joy of every longing heart. You're the savior of everyone who puts their faith and trust in you. God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us from the flood of your judgment. You are our shield and our defender when the wrath of God falls. And so, Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for being the only righteous one, for living the life we could never live, dying the death that we deserve to die. We thank you that through faith in you, the better Adam, we can be forgiven. That through faith in you, we can be restored. Through faith in you, we are restored and we now rejoice because you are the Lord, our salvation. Worthy are you, Jesus, the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we pray this all in your mighty name. Amen.